Well, it's uh, a pleasure to be here with you. It's a pleasure to have the task of opening up God's Word together with you and to continue the series that you've been in through the summer in the Psalms. Uh, if you'd like to follow along, um, I won't read the Psalm again. It's what we read together responsively a few minutes ago, but it is available if you don't have a Bible with you on the insert that we read from. One of the ways that uh, the Lord prepared me for ministry long-term in Germany, even though I didn't have any plans at that point, was that I was a German minor in college at uh, TCU over here in Fort Worth. And in one of my uh, advanced classes um, further on, we uh, watched and we discussed a film. And this film, its title was translated into English in a really unfortunate way. It's called The Nasty Girl, which gives you a completely incorrect idea of what this movie is like and what it's about. What it is, is a story based on a true one about a young woman who's a native of small town Bavaria, that's in, in southern Germany, and she's grown up being taught to be proud of her hometown's history of resistance to the Nazis during the 1930s and 40s. As a teenager, this is in the early 80s now, uh, she enters a Germany-wide essay contest for high school students with the topic, My Hometown During the Third Reich. She wants to share the inspiring story that she's been brought up with, with others around the country. And so she starts to research the history of the town, and she starts to find strange obstacles placed in her way. There are missing pages from newspapers in the town archives. There are librarians who are uncooperative with her research. There are teachers and even civic leaders she finds seemingly trying to steer her away from the subject. Ultimately, as she persists to her dismay, she makes a discovery. She finds that her hometown was host to a concentration camp during the Holocaust. She learns that a number of community leaders collaborated actively with the Nazi government in their crimes. And she has to choose, as she grows up, between setting the record straight and her own and her family's safety. The woman that the story was based on, Anna Rosmus, in fact, as an adult, had to immigrate to the United States because she was receiving death threats routinely from people in her town. That's maybe an all too familiar type of a tale. Someone who is pursuing the truth, being persecuted by those who fear the truth, those who pursue righteousness or justice, being despised, slandered, threatened by those who stand to gain from the injustice that characterizes the status quo. Today's sermon text brings us in prayer to a moment when all of the momentum, all the advantages seem to be on the side of hatred and of darkness and of falsehood. It takes us into the sufferings of the true righteous one, God's anointed, 
the one who came to his own and whose own people did not receive him. But as we give it our attention, we will find in it grace to help in time of need. Let me first pray with us that that would be the case. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your word that is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And we open ourselves before it now, asking that it would pierce, that it would separate bone and marrow, that the thoughts of our hearts would be laid bare before you, but also that we would find through this work that you do by your word and spirit that we are broken, that we might be healed, that we would be strengthened when we suffer. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. It's a long psalm. It was long reading it, but I hope you could sense the movement in it. It starts with a very simple call to God to act. Save me, O God. And then David goes on to describe his situation. He, he makes a complaint. And he does this another two times. But it's not just a back and forth. It's not just alternating. Each time these pleas for action, they get longer, more passionate. And the complaints, the descriptions of the situation get shorter, but also more desperate as the psalm proceeds. This is the prayer of a man whose world is coming apart at the seams. The picture he keeps coming back to is a vivid one, isn't it? It's one of drowning, of being caught in a flood and sunk in mud where there's no foothold, feeling moments away from going under for the last time. And that is what he says it's like for him to be surrounded by people who are slandering him, who are accusing him, who are shaming him, who are mocking him, who are, as we might say, kicking him when he's down. That's how it feels to have no one, not even the ones that he might most expect to help him, who are willing to stand up for him, even to sit with him in his misery. And so he calls to the only one he believes can help, God himself, to rescue him, to prove that those who trust in Israel's God are right to do so. He calls on God not only to show mercy to him, but also to help in a way that may make us a little bit uncomfortable by turning the table on his enemies. That makes us uncomfortable, I think, because this really is one of the psalms that the New Testament uses to teach us that the psalms are prophetic words about Jesus, that they are prayers of Jesus Christ. If you have spent time in the Gospel of John, and if you're sitting here as someone who's not really familiar with Christianity or who we believe that Jesus is, John is a very good place to start John seems to have had this psalm especially in mind as he was writing his gospel, the fourth book of the New Testament. 
He quotes verse 9, John 2.17, which we heard just a, a few moments ago. He records Jesus also quoting verse 4, they hated me without a cause. In John 15.25, when he's explaining with his disciples the night before he goes to the cross, that the world hates him, must hate him, and will hate his disciples as well. And while all four Gospels mention that Jesus was given sour wine in a sponge as he hung on the cross, it's John alone who tells us that he was given this sour wine in response to saying, I thirst. They gave me sour wine for my thirst, as verse 21 says. And this Prayer clearly shaped John's understanding of who Jesus was, but it, it shaped Jesus' understanding of what it was going to mean to be the Lord's chosen king of Israel, the Messiah, the Christ. It was going to mean being, as he says in verse 29, afflicted and in pain. It meant being God's suffering servant. And it's not hard, again, if you're familiar with the Gospels, to see why Jesus saw himself so clearly in this one who was hated without a cause. Jesus was routinely attacked with lies, as it says in verse 4, up to and including the claim that the miracles that he did were done by the power of the devil rather than the Spirit of God. For the sake of Jesus' preaching and ministry, he was abandoned by those who were closest to him, alienated even from his closest relatives. As he describes in verse 8, John, again, very pointedly tells us even his brothers didn't believe in him. John 7, 5. The disciples, again, remembered the words, zeal for your house has consumed me when Jesus cleansed the temple in Jerusalem. And they saw this as meaning something much more than the temple is very important to Jesus. No, Jesus would go on to describe his body as the true temple, the meeting point of heaven and earth, and his death and his resurrection as a tearing down and rebuilding of this temple in three days. The house that Jesus meant is the people of God united with their God in their Lord and Christ. The Messiah, the one who would be consumed in that word in Hebrew, it means eaten up. It means destroyed. He would be consumed by his jealous love for the people who would reject him. Of course, the last hours of Jesus' life were full of shame, and dishonor, and reproach of the most intense kind. These words, shame, dishonor, reproach, you've noticed the repetition. They show up ten times in this psalm. All of it suffered for God's sake. He found no pity. And all those who should have been his comforters scattered from him. But Jesus had learned, growing up with this psalm, where the path into his kingdom had to lead. As our epistle reading from earlier tells us, Jesus learned obedience 
from what he suffered, and he offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. This psalm taught him what that suffering was going to involve and how to cry out to him who was able to save him from death. David, as he wrote this prayer, was putting himself into some pretty select company. In the history of the Bible, the company of men like Abel, the second man ever born, and Job, the righteous sufferer, Joseph, men who suffered because their deeds were righteous, who were hated without a cause. Long after David's time, more men would be added to these ranks. Jeremiah, the prophet, would tread the same path as a, as a faithful servant of God. Isaiah, the great prophet, would speak of God's servant as one who would suffer at God's hand for the sins of those who despised him. And just like these righteous men, Jesus is at once suffering unjustly at the hands of evil people. And he is the one God has struck down, the one God has wounded. It says in verse 26, and friends, this is the gospel, that Jesus Christ, the one who lives and reigns with God the Father forever, to whom every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth must bow, this one is also the suffering and crucified one, the man of sorrows, the one who bore the sins of his people himself, on the cross. This remains a song of Jesus for us now. Even though his sufferings are finished, he's entered into his glory. But as we pray this psalm, as we use this psalm, we can know that Christ knows our helplessness, our desperation intimately from the inside, when we pray this psalm, psalms like it, these laments, Christ speaks in us and with us and to us in the midst of the life that we're living here on earth. But if we confess this, if we see this as a prayer of Jesus for us, we run into a couple of problems, a couple of, of, of tricky bits the first one shows up pretty close to the beginning of the psalm in verse 5. What does it mean that Jesus is confessing sin? It says, again, right there in our text from Hebrews, that he was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Well, of course, there was no issue with David confessing his sin. If you've read 2 Samuel, which I can only recommend, you will know about some of them in some detail. But in this case, that isn't quite what David is doing. Not really. David says, you know my folly. He says, the wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Well, who's, who's he talking to? He's talking to God. God knows what sins David is hiding, unlike the people who are slandering him, 
who are persecuting him, attacking him with lies. The point that David is making is something more like, God, I have no secrets from you. How could I? You know whether there's anything to the charges that are being brought against me. You know whether there's a hidden sin that you're disciplining me for, that's putting me through all this shame and dishonor. You know, God. It's a prayer very much like Job's. And of course, Jesus, just like Job, just like David, could say, in fact, much better than either of these men, he could say his life was lived in complete openness to his God. That he truly had nothing to hide. That there truly was nothing in the charges that sent him to the cross. And here in the psalm, what immediately follows confirms this too. David's concern is that God not let these false charges against him stick. That God not give ammunition to the enemies of God's people. That those who are loyal to him, David, as God's anointed king, not be humiliated as he is being. David says, in fact, that it's because of God, for your sake, that he is undergoing this humiliation. Because of his devotion to God's house, the dwelling place of God with his people. And that is what has made him enemies among those who want to benefit from a different sort of priority, those who want to feed on the poor of God's people, those in Jesus' time who want to profit from God's temple at the expense of the poor. And Christ prayed and praised this for our sake. His life is, always was, and always will be an open book before his God and Father. And so he cries out for vindication, not only his own, which did come when the Father raised him from the dead, but for ours, for the public revelation that we really belong to him, that we really have had our sins dealt with by the blood of his cross, that we really are right with our God for his sake. But perhaps a more troubling part of the psalm, I've hinted at it already, is this row of what feels like vicious curses find those in verses 22 to 28. Let their table become a snare. Let their eyes be darkened and their loins tremble. Pour out your indignation, your burning anger upon them. May their camp be a desolation. Add to them punishment upon punishment. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. What do we do with the thought of Jesus calling down God's curse on his enemies? How do we accept this kind of prayer as worthy of a Jesus who said, On the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I know at least one person who was converted by those words. 
here as well. We need to understand, first and foremost, what is being asked of God in this moment. What the Christ, what the anointed king is asking is that his enemies be defeated. That they be unable to carry on what they are doing to him. That their lies would not be believed. That their lies would not stand the test. Because what's the alternative when you come right down to it? Well, if that doesn't happen, then they win. Then they win. And so, it also needs to be very, very clear to all concerned that God really has taken a side in this. That God has stepped in. That God has intervened. And that means that the defeat of these enemies must be not something that happens privately somewhere, in a corner, in a back room. No, this needs to be catastrophic. This needs to be a spectacle that everyone can see who was in the right and who was in the wrong all along. We know that Jesus of all people, had no trouble with warning his own people that God would add to them punishment upon punishment if they would not repent. We also need to see the nature of what David is praying against his enemies, of what Christ prays against his enemies. These are covenant curses. These are things that God promised would come to his people if they would not obey him, if they would not keep his laws if they would oppose him and go after other gods. And so to pray these curses is also simply to hold God to his word, to ask him to do what he has promised to do, to bring justice where there is no justice. And yet, Jesus did forgive his enemies from the cross. Jesus did teach us to forgive and to bless and to pray for our enemies. And we need to look beyond the visible situation in which David prayed this psalm, in which Christ would have prayed this psalm. When Jesus prayed this He knew that it wasn't the people around him, even those who slandered and abused and crucified him, who were ultimately in the crosshairs of God's curse. The unseen reality, the power behind Christ's human enemies was always the power of darkness, the power of sin, the power of death, the power of Satan. And so when Jesus died, paradoxically, it seemed that this prayer of David on his lips was unanswered. But when he died, in that very moment, that's when God's answer to these verses, verses 22 to 28, was revealed. Paul writes about this moment in Colossians 2.15, saying, He disarmed the rulers and authorities 
and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in him, that is Christ, on the cross. It happened. It happened to the power of death and the devil. And of course, then, when Jesus rose again from the dead, the whole song, not just the curses, but all these pleas for rescue received their definitive answer, didn't they? Jesus, the anointed one, was raised up out of the pit. He was freed from the power of his enemies, both his dishonor, shame, and reproach, and that of all those who had set their hopes on him was done away with forever. And so we too, can take these hard words on our lips. We can pray them, calling on the righteous judge of all the earth to defeat the powers and the principalities that war against us. Not that we wish for our human enemies to share their fate, but we do also warn them. And if we are taking the psalm seriously, we are being warned that all those who will not turn back from their evil ways, will finally be blotted out of the book of the living. We can take that completely seriously, knowing who Jesus is and what he has done for us. I don't know if you've experienced psalms like this the same way that I do, but, but sometimes I feel a little bit of whiplash when I get to a certain point in the psalm. Because we've just been reading these curses, these imprecations, if you want the big fancy word. And then there's one more desperate cry for help in verse 29. I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. And then the tone changes completely. It's like we're in a different psalm. David is suddenly talking about his plans for a joyful worship service, the kind of thing where maybe Psalm 68 that you looked at last week would be sung. What's going on? Well, David himself is confessing his faith. He's confessing his expectation. He's making a promise to God that if God will act publicly, and reveal his faithfulness that David publicly will celebrate that faithfulness. He's boasting about the delight that awaits all those who are perhaps the same people who have been sort of slinking away from him in his sufferings up until now. People who wondered if maybe David wasn't a fraud after all. The disciples who wondered if maybe Jesus wasn't the Christ after all. He's boasting about what's coming to them. And even more, he's calling the whole world to sing along. Declaring his expectation not only that God will help him personally out of his trouble, but that God will save his people. That God will dwell with them in the place that he has chosen. His kingdom will come. This shift to praise, you'll see it in so many of these psalms of lament. And here, as elsewhere, for us who know Jesus Christ, 
This is a reminder that the Psalms of Lament are, in Jesus Christ, fundamentally all answered prayers. These are answered prayers. And what David looks ahead to confesses by faith Jesus Christ lives now and forever at his Father's right hand. Jesus Christ was heard because of his reverence, as the author to Hebrews writes. This is why we can gather to praise God for the salvation, not only that we expect that too, but also for what he has accomplished, and not simply come cringing each Sunday in here in the hopes that this week he'll be in a good mood. But if the Psalms of Lament are fulfilled, if that ultimate answer has already been given, then what do we need the first 29 verses for? Why should this still be a prayer for us? The answer is pretty simple. Jesus Christ has entered into his joy and his rest once and for all, but we haven't yet, have we? There are going to be times in your life, maybe this is especially a word for the, the younger people, the children, maybe the teenagers, young adults among us, there's going to be times in your life, if you haven't experienced them yet, when this psalm, I mean the first 29 verses, are going to feel very real and very relatable to you. This image of being in raging waters that are up to your neck, maybe even to the specifics of being hated without a cause, of being despised or slandered for your faithfulness to God. What we also need to hear is this, if it's not you and me, it is someone in the household of God. It is someone in the household of God. It might be someone fairly close to home who is really wondering if they are going to be able to hold on to their job if they cannot affirm the things that are being expected of them by their HR department. Or it may be people like those I've been receiving updates about three women who a couple of weeks ago in their native Iran were arrested and were all brought to hearings before a judge who has a reputation of handing out long jail sentences, even death sentences, to those that he considers enemies of the state, and that includes those who have confessed Jesus Christ. There is someone who is facing this. And so the psalm and the laments that are like it, they teach us also solidarity with God's whole church. As we pray them, we are remembering God's people before the throne of grace, just as we come for our own needs. And that's, that's a corrective. When we pray these prayers, in a place even when we do personally relate to what David and Jesus are going through. We don't come to the psalm looking just for a mirror, looking just for God to relate to us. No. We come to the psalm to know Jesus Christ because he knows us and he knows all those who are filling up what is lacking in his sufferings throughout the world. 
Jesus Christ who, out of zeal for God's house, and that is you and that is me, that is all of us, the church of God around the world, he was hated without a cause. He was given bitter poison for food and sour wine for drink. He became a stranger, even to his brothers, for the sake of his heavenly Father. And know that because the favorable time, the time, the acceptable time that David pled with God for, that acceptable time was the third day after the waters of death closed over his head. Because of that, Jesus Christ is the one who will at last judge the living and the dead, and he will end the prosperity and the victory of God's enemies forever. And here and now, he draws near to your soul because his steadfast love is good. He hears the needy. Thanks be to God in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the one that you sent to the world to redeem the world. We thank you that he was willing to pass through these raging waters, that he was willing to bear reproach, dishonor, and shame for your sake and for the sake of your house. I thank you that we are being built together, living stones into a house for his dwelling. May we know him in our sufferings, in our prayers for our brothers and sisters who suffer here and around the world. May we know him as we rejoice in the salvation that you worked for him, the salvation that is now ours and one day will be revealed to all the world. May we love him and serve him with joy as we know him. We pray it all in his name, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Beloved, let's prepare for the table of our Lord by standing together and singing Selection 193. Let's stand and sing.
Lift up your hearts. And let us give thanks to the Lord our God. Well, it's uh, a pleasure to be here with you. It's a pleasure to have the task of opening up God's Word together with you and to continue the series that you've been in through the summer in the Psalms. Uh, if you would like to follow along, um, I won't read the Psalm again. It's what we read together responsively a few minutes ago, but it is available if you don't have a Bible with you on the insert that we read from. One of the ways that uh, the Lord prepared me for ministry long-term in Germany, even though I didn't have any plans at that point, was that I was a German minor in college at uh, TCU over here in Fort Worth. And in one of my uh, advanced classes um, further on, we uh, watched and we discussed a film. And this film, its title was translated into English in a really unfortunate way. It's called The Nasty Girl, which gives you a completely incorrect idea of what this movie is like and what it's about. What it is, is a story based on a true one about a young woman who's a native of small town Bavaria, that's in, in southern Germany, and she's grown up being taught to be proud of her hometown's history of resistance to the Nazis during the 1930s and 40s. As a teenager, this is in the early 80s now, uh, she enters a Germany-wide essay contest for high school students with the topic, My Hometown During the Third Reich. She wants to share the inspiring story that she's been brought up with, with others around the country. And so she starts to research the history of the town, and she starts to find strange obstacles placed in her way. There are missing pages from newspapers in the town archives. There are librarians who are uncooperative with her research. There are teachers and even civic leaders she finds seemingly trying to steer her away from the subject. Ultimately, as she persists to her dismay, she makes a discovery. She finds that her hometown was host to a concentration camp during the Holocaust. She learns that a number of community leaders collaborated actively with the Nazi government in their crimes. And she has to choose, as she grows up, between setting the record straight and her own and her family's safety. The woman that the story was based on, Anna Rosmus, in fact, as an adult, had to immigrate to the United States because she was receiving death threats routinely from people in her town. That's maybe an all too familiar type of a tale. Someone who is pursuing the truth, being persecuted by those who fear the truth, those who pursue righteousness or justice being despised, slandered, threatened by those who stand to gain from the injustice that characterizes the status quo. Today's sermon text brings us in prayer to a moment when all of the momentum, all the advantages seem to be on the side of hatred and of darkness and of falsehood. It takes us 
into the sufferings of the true righteous one, God's anointed, the one who came to his own and whose own people did not receive him. But as we give it our attention, we will find in it grace to help in time of need. Let me first pray with us that that would be the case. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your word that is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And we open ourselves before it now, asking that it would pierce, that it would separate bone and marrow, that the thoughts of our hearts would be laid bare before you, but also that we would find through this work that you do by your word and spirit that we are broken, that we might be healed, that we would be strengthened when we suffer. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. It's a long psalm. It was long reading it, but I hope you could sense the movement in it. It starts with a very simple call to God to act. Save me, O God. And then David goes on to describe his situation. He, he makes a complaint. And he does this another two times. But it's not just a back and forth. It's not just alternating. Each time these pleas for action, they get longer more passionate, and the complaints, the descriptions of the situation get shorter, but also more desperate as the psalm proceeds. This is the prayer of a man whose world is coming apart at the seams. The picture he keeps coming back to is a vivid one, isn't it? It's one of drowning, of being caught in a flood and sunk in mud where there's no foothold feeling moments away from going under for the last time. And that is what he says it's like for him to be surrounded by people who are slandering him, who are accusing him, who are shaming him, who are mocking him, who are, as we might say, kicking him when he's down. That's how it feels to have no one, not even the ones that he might most expect to help him who are willing to stand up for him, even to sit with him in his misery. And so he calls to the only one he believes can help, God himself, to rescue him, to prove that those who trust in Israel's God are right to do so. He calls on God not only to show mercy to him, but also to help in a way that may make us a little bit uncomfortable by turning the table on his enemies. That makes us uncomfortable, I think, because this really is one of the psalms that the New Testament uses to teach us that the psalms are prophetic words about Jesus, that they are prayers of Jesus Christ. If you have spent time in the Gospel of John, and if you're sitting here as someone who's not really familiar with Christianity or who we believe that Jesus is, John is a very good place to start. 
John seems to have had this psalm especially in mind as he was writing his gospel, the fourth book of the New Testament. He quotes verse 9, John 2.17, which we heard just a, a few moments ago. He records Jesus also quoting verse 4, they hated me without a cause. In John 15.25, when he's explaining with his disciples the night before he goes to the cross, that the world hates him, must hate him, and will hate his disciples as well. And while all four Gospels mention that Jesus was given sour wine in a sponge as he hung on the cross, it's John alone who tells us that he was given this sour wine in response to saying, I thirst. They gave me sour wine for my thirst, as verse 21 says. And this Prayer clearly shaped John's understanding of who Jesus was, but it, it shaped Jesus' understanding of what it was going to mean to be the Lord's chosen king of Israel, the Messiah, the Christ. It was going to mean being, as he says in verse 29, afflicted and in pain. It meant being God's suffering servant. And it's not hard, again, if you're familiar with the Gospels, to see why Jesus saw himself so clearly in this one who was hated without a cause. Jesus was routinely attacked with lies, as it says in verse 4. Up to and including the claim that the miracles that he did were done by the power of the devil rather than the Spirit of God. For the sake of Jesus' preaching and ministry, he was abandoned by those who were closest to him, alienated even from his closest relatives. As he describes in verse 8, John, again, very pointedly tells us even his brothers didn't believe in him. John 7, 5. The disciples again remembered the words, zeal for your house has consumed me when Jesus cleansed the temple in Jerusalem. And they saw this as meaning something much more than the temple is very important to Jesus. No, Jesus would go on to describe his body as the true temple, the meeting point of heaven and earth, and his death and his resurrection as a tearing down and rebuilding of this temple in three days. The house that Jesus meant is the people of God united with their God in their Lord and Christ. The Messiah, the one who would be consumed in that word in Hebrew, it means eaten up. It means destroyed. He would be consumed by his jealous love for the people who would reject him. Of course, the last hours of Jesus' life were full of shame and dishonor and reproach of the most intense kind. These words, shame, dishonor, reproach, you've noticed the repetition. They show up ten times in this psalm. All of it suffered for God's sake. He found no pity. And all those who should have been his comforters scattered from him. But Jesus had learned, growing up with this psalm, where the path into his kingdom had to lead. And as our epistle reading from earlier tells us, Jesus learned obedience 
from what he suffered, and he offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. This psalm taught him what that suffering was going to involve and how to cry out to him who was able to save him from death. David, as he wrote this prayer, was putting himself into some pretty select company. In the history of the Bible, the company of men like Abel, the second man ever born, and Job, the righteous sufferer, and Joseph, men who suffered because their deeds were righteous, who were hated without a cause. Long after David's time, more men would be added to these ranks. Jeremiah, the prophet, would tread the same path as a, as a faithful servant of God. Isaiah, the great prophet, would speak of God's servant as one who would suffer at God's hand for the sins of those who despised him. And just like these righteous men, Jesus is at once suffering unjustly at the hands of evil people. And he is the one God has struck down, the one God has wounded. As it says in verse 26, and friends, this is the gospel that Jesus Christ, the one who lives and reigns with God the Father forever, to whom every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth must bow, this one is also the suffering and crucified one, the man of sorrows, the one who bore the sins of his people himself on the cross. This remains a song of Jesus for us now. Even though his sufferings are finished, he's entered into his glory. But as we pray this psalm, as we use this psalm, we can know that Christ knows our helplessness, our desperation intimately from the inside. When we pray, this psalm, psalms like it, these laments, Christ speaks in us and with us and to us in the midst of the life that we're living here on earth. But if we confess this, if we see this as a prayer of Jesus for us, we run into a couple of problems, a couple of, of, of tricky bits. The first one shows up pretty close to the beginning of the psalm in verse 5. What does it mean that Jesus is confessing sin? It says, again, right there in our text from Hebrews, that he was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Well, of course, there was no issue with David confessing his sin. If you've read 2 Samuel, which I can only recommend, you will know about some of them in some detail. But in this case, that isn't quite what David is doing. Not really. David says, you know my folly. He says, the wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Well, who's, who's he talking to? He's talking to God. God knows what sins David is hiding, unlike the people who are slandering him, 
who are persecuting him, attacking him with lies. The point that David is making is something more like, God, I have no secrets from you. How could I? You know whether there's anything to the charges that are being brought against me. You know whether there's a hidden sin that you're disciplining me for that's putting me through all this shame and dishonor. You know, God. It's a prayer very much like Job's. And of course, Jesus, just like Job, just like David, could say, in fact, much better than either of these men, he could say his life was lived in complete openness to his God, that he truly had nothing to hide, that there truly was nothing in the charges that sent him to the cross. And here in the psalm, what immediately follows confirms this too. David's concern is that God not let these false charges against him stick that God not give ammunition to the enemies of God's people, that those who are loyal to him, David, as God's anointed king, not be humiliated as he is being. David says, in fact, that it's because of God, for your sake, that he is undergoing this humiliation because of his devotion to God's house, the dwelling place of God with his people. And that is what has made him enemies among those who want to benefit from a different sort of priority. Those who want to feed on the poor of God's people. Those in Jesus' time who want to profit from God's temple at the expense of the poor. Christ prayed and prays this for our sake. His life is, always was, and always will be an open book before his God and Father. And so he cries out for vindication, not only his own, which did come when the Father raised him from the dead, but for ours, for the public revelation that we really belong to him, that we really have had our sins dealt with by the blood of his cross, that we really are right with our God for his sake. But perhaps a more troubling part of the psalm, I've hinted at it already, is this row of what feels like vicious curses find those in verses 22 to 28. Let their table become a snare. Let their eyes be darkened and their loins tremble. Pour out your indignation, your burning anger upon them. May there can't be a desolation. Add to them punishment upon punishment. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. What do we do with the thought of Jesus calling down God's curse on his enemies? How do we accept this kind of prayer as worthy of a Jesus who said, On the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I know at least one person who was converted by those words. 
here as well. We need to understand, first and foremost, what is being asked of God in this moment. What the Christ, what the anointed king is asking, is that his enemies be defeated. That they be unable to carry on what they are doing to him. That their lies would not be believed. That their lies would not stand the test. Because what's the alternative when you come right down to it? Well, if that doesn't happen, then they win. Then they win. And so, it also needs to be very, very clear to all concerned that God really has taken a side in this, that God has stepped in, that God has intervened. And that means that the defeat of these enemies must be not something that happens privately somewhere, in a corner, in a back room. No, this needs to be catastrophic. This needs to be a spectacle that everyone can see who was in the right and who was in the wrong all along. And we know that Jesus, of all people, had no trouble with warning his own people that God would add to them punishment upon punishment if they would not repent. We also need to see the nature of what David is praying against his enemies, of what Christ prays against his enemies. These are covenant curses. These are things that God promised would come to his people if they would not obey him, if they would not keep his laws, if they would oppose him and go after other gods. And so to pray these curses is also simply to hold God to his word, to ask him to do what he has promised to do, to bring justice where there is no justice. And yet, Jesus did forgive his enemies from the cross. Jesus did teach us to forgive and to bless and to pray for our enemies. And we need to look beyond the visible situation in which David prayed this psalm, in which Christ would have prayed this psalm. When Jesus prayed this, he knew that it wasn't the people around him, even those who slandered and abused and crucified him, who were ultimately in the crosshairs of God's curse. The unseen reality, the power behind Christ's human enemies was always the power of darkness, the power of sin, the power of death, the power of Satan. And so when Jesus died, paradoxically, it seemed that this prayer of David on his lips was unanswered. But when he died, in that very moment, that's when God's answer to these verses, verses 22 to 28, was revealed. Paul writes about this moment in Colossians 2.15, saying, He disarmed the rulers and authorities. 
and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in him, that is Christ, on the cross. It happened. It happened to the power of death and the devil. And of course, then, when Jesus rose again from the dead, the whole psalm, not just the curses, but all these pleas for rescue, received their definitive answer, didn't they? Jesus, the anointed one, was raised up out of the pit. He was freed from the power of his enemies, both his dishonor, shame, and reproach, and that of all those who had set their hopes on him was done away with forever. And so we too can take these hard words on our lips. We can pray them, calling on the righteous judge of all the earth to defeat the powers and the principalities that war against us. Not that we wish for our human enemies to share their fate, but we do also warn them. And if we are taking the psalm seriously, we are being warned that all those who will not turn back from their evil ways will finally be blotted out of the book of the living. We can take that completely seriously, knowing who Jesus is and what he has done for us. I don't know if you've experienced psalms like this the same way that I do, but, but sometimes I feel a little bit of whiplash when I get to a certain point in the psalm. Because we've just been reading these curses, these imprecations, if you want the big fancy word. And then there's one more desperate cry for help in verse 29. I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. And then the tone changes completely. It's like we're in a different psalm. David is suddenly talking about his plans for a joyful worship service, the kind of thing where maybe Psalm 68 that you looked at last week would be sung. What's going on? Well, David himself is confessing his faith. He's confessing his expectation. He's making a promise to God that if God will act publicly, and reveal his faithfulness that David publicly will celebrate that faithfulness. He's boasting about the delight that awaits all those who are perhaps the same people who have been sort of slinking away from him in his sufferings up until now. People who wondered if maybe David wasn't a fraud after all. The disciples who wondered if maybe Jesus wasn't the Christ after all. He's boasting about what's coming to them. And even more, he's calling the whole world to sing along. Declaring his expectation not only that God will help him personally out of his trouble, but that God will save his people. That God will dwell with them in the place that he has chosen. His kingdom will come. This shift to praise, you'll see it in so many of these psalms of lament. And here, as elsewhere, for us who know Jesus Christ, this is a reminder 
that the Psalms of Lament are, in Jesus Christ, fundamentally all answered prayers. These are answered prayers. And what David looks ahead to confesses by faith Jesus Christ lives now and forever at his Father's right hand. Jesus Christ was heard because of his reverence, as the author to Hebrews writes. And this is why we can gather to praise God for the salvation, not only that we expect that too, but also for what he has accomplished and not simply come cringing each Sunday in here in the hopes that this week he'll be in a good mood. But if the Psalms of lament are fulfilled, if that ultimate answer has already been given, then what do we need the first 29 verses for? Why should this still be a prayer for us? The answer is pretty simple. Jesus Christ has entered into his joy and his rest once and for all, but we haven't yet, have we? There are going to be times in your life, maybe this is especially a word for the, the younger people, the children, maybe the teenagers, young adults among us, there's going to be times in your life, if you haven't experienced them yet, when this psalm, I mean the first 29 verses, are going to feel very real and very relatable to you. This image of being in raging waters that are up to your neck. Maybe even to the specifics of being hated without a cause, of being despised or slandered for your faithfulness to God. What we also need to hear is this. If it's not you and me, it is someone in the household of God. It is someone in the household of God. It might be someone fairly close to home who is really wondering if they are going to be able to hold on to their job if they cannot affirm the things that are being expected of them by their HR department. Or it may be people like those I've been receiving updates about three women who a couple of weeks ago in their native Iran were arrested and were all brought to hearings before a judge who has a reputation of handing out long jail sentences, even death sentences, to those that he considers enemies of the state, and that includes those who have confessed Jesus Christ. There is someone who is facing this. And so the psalm and the laments that are like it, they teach us also solidarity with God's whole church. As we pray them, we are remembering God's people before the throne of grace, just as we come for our own needs. And that's, that's a corrective. When we pray these prayers in a place even when we do personally relate to what David and Jesus are going through. We don't come to the psalm looking just for a mirror, looking just for God to relate to us. No. We come to the psalm to know Jesus Christ because he knows us and he knows all those who are filling up what is lacking in his sufferings throughout the world. Jesus Christ, who 
out of zeal for God's house, and that is you and that is me. That is all of us. The church of God around the world, he was hated without a cause. He was given bitter poison for food and sour wine for drink. He became a stranger even to his brothers for the sake of his heavenly father. And know that because the favorable time, the time, the acceptable time that David pled with God for, that acceptable time was the third day after the waters of death closed over his head. Because of that, Jesus Christ is the one who will at last judge the living and the dead. And he will end the prosperity and the victory of God's enemies forever. And here and now, he draws near to your soul. Because his steadfast love is good. He hears the needy. Thanks be to God in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the one that you sent to the world to redeem the world. We thank you that he was willing to pass through these raging waters, that he was willing to bear reproach, dishonor, and shame for your sake and for the sake of your house. I thank you that we are being built together, living stones, into a house for his dwelling. May we know him in our sufferings, in our prayers for our brothers and sisters who suffer here and around the world. May we know him as we rejoice in the salvation that you worked for him, the salvation that is now ours and one day will be revealed to all the world. May we love him and serve him with joy as we know him. We pray it all in his name, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.